You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to read for us the first half of the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And if you've been with us the last several months, we've been walking through the book of Judges, the seventh book of the Bible, a, a book that's described as uh, it's chaos. It's, it's, it's the Wild West, and it's uh, the, the, the crescendo of the book of Judges is that people did whatever was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. So the entirety of the book of Judges is this meaningful period of anticipation for God's king. That apart from the godly king that God would send to his people, these people were without hope. And so we... We see that in, in the book of Judges and, and the, one of the precursors or previews to God's king that he would send, that is David, was a man by the name of Samson who was a Nazarite. And, and we're meant to ask, like, so how do we know that God is up to something? What are his signatures? We see in the Gospel of Luke in the very first chapter, in the same way that Samson, a Nazarite, paved the way for God's King David to come and deliver his people from their enemy, so also we find the Gospel of Luke, the introduction to the coming of Jesus in this season was what? Paved by, as we'll see here, a Nazarite by the name of John the Baptist. And just like God raised up a forerunner of unlikely birth with strength and the anointing of the Spirit of God, so also we find the signature of God's saving work here. Now that's especially important for us because this season, historically for Christians, as a season of Advent, that is an expectation that God will come to be with us, is a reminder that we are not forsaken, but that God is with us and for us. God has broken in, God has entered into the story. That is, that God created this and is telling the story, not from a distance, but creating and telling a story that He will enter into. He will enter into the world that He created. And He will reveal Himself to a people that He has chosen. That's especially important because Christ, Christmas is a weird holiday. In the grand scheme of the world, it's the holiday that has distinctly Christian roots. I mean, the word Christ is in the name of the holiday. It's the most, let's say, tolerated or even, I'm going to put this in quotes, celebrated Christian holiday around the world. And so it's this interesting thing where, for the most part, the rest of the world and the rest of our surrounding cultures are pretty okay with us celebrating Christmas. And, and it's kind of interesting because it's the most widely celebrated holiday. And, and so in that sense, the, the Christian convictions of Jesus coming to be with us and for us, God in the flesh, are at least at this time of year tolerable to the world. And our influence on the world is somewhat visible in the way that they tolerate us and want to celebrate with us. But there's something else that happens. The way that people have begun to celebrate Christmas outside of a Christian tradition also has influence back on us. And so in the same way, the world kind of tolerates Christians and, and, the way, and what they believe this time of year. So also often Christians begin to tolerate what the world believes and celebrates this time of year. And we don't just celebrate a morning, a tree, Santa, and reindeer. We celebrate the coming of our King. Evidence that this is not all there is. So here, as Luke introduces us to this story that is replete with the signature of God, we're meant to begin to celebrate and remember how meaningful it is to wait and anticipate the coming of a King. Beginning in the first verse of the Gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, 
And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the, to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I... I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months... She kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary's, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. 
and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. God has broken into the world. He breaks into the lives, as Luke tells us for the rest of his gospel and even the book of Acts, he breaks into the lives of common people with ordinary and common fears, with common dreams, common hopes. God enters into the world that he has created, into the most common and mundane of places towns and cities that you've likely never visited and maybe never will. And you certainly wouldn't had God not broken into his creation there. God enters into the world. And that's especially important if you're in this room and maybe you're wondering, is this all there is? Is this it? Is my life as it currently exists all that it ever will be? And I know for some of you, maybe if you're in this room and you're not a believer, maybe you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, and I'm so grateful that you're here because it's likely that you come with skepticism and lots of questions that Luke welcomes. Notice, Luke, in the very first few verses, says, look, I'm setting this out. Even though this has already been laid out, even though there are already eyewitnesses, there are already people teaching this, friend, skeptic, did you hear what Luke said? That wasn't enough. I set out for my own careful outline of the facts as they were presented. So that I might begin to test for myself, is this all there is? Or is God doing something more? And Luke, unlike the other Gospel writers, places the story of God's entering into human history into what we would simply call like secular history. That is not necessarily the religious history. Did you catch that? In verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now up to this point, if you've been with us through the book of, uh, I almost said the book of Samson, <laughs> the book of Judges, the, the story of Samson, the story of each of one of the judges starts with almost identical language. In the days of, there was a man from, right? At this point, there was this. And Luke tells us something amazing, so that if you're, if you're wondering, is this real? Did this actually happen? Luke wants you to know, oh, this happened. This really took place, and it took place in a time in which a prominent king that was noted for utter brutality was in power. Now, in the book of Judges, and we'll see again here, we, we've seen over and over and over again, God enters into the unlikely and unexpected circumstances, but I want you to see even something more powerful. God is at work in spite of evil circumstances. Herod, this prominent king, famous for his viciousness, is ruling at the time of these events. And that ought to grab our attentions right off the bat. Josephus, a Jewish historian, gives us a lot of help in understanding about Herod. He was influential. He was powerful. He was effective. He was cunning. So much so that, remember, Jesus calls Herod Antipas his son, that fox. He was ruthless and cruel. Such that we even see in the Gospel of Matthew that this Herod orders the death of all the baby boys born in Nazareth and Bethlehem in this area for fear of losing his throne. For fear of an uprising that might be led by this prophesied king. Herod drowned his own brother-in-law, Aristobulus. He he murdered his own wife, Marianne, because she was suspected of unfaithfulness. But really, it was because he was, again, worried that someone would be after his throne. He murdered, and he had no problem with any of his ten wives, using them for whatever he pleased, such that he murdered his own mother-in-law. He murdered three of his 
12 sons. Now we often tend to connect history to the political climate of the day. Right? If I were to say, in the days of Adolf Hitler, you'd immediately think, like, okay, this is, this is what you can expect. This is what was normal. This is what was common. In the days of Pol Pot in Cambodia, right? Death, destruction, fear abounded. And yet in those days, in the midst of evil circumstances, God enters in. I want you to see it's not just that God works in unexpected ways. God can work even in the midst of evil and terrible things. The evil and brokenness in the world doesn't stop God. It stops us, certainly, confounds us, but it's not a surprise to God. And so in that time, there was a priest named Zechariah. And we're going to be introduced to him for the rest of the chapter. He was of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, a a lineage of, of a great priest all the way back to the book of Numbers. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous. They were pious, that is. And they evidently had a great reputation. They, they were well known for being good and godly people. They abided by the statutes of the Lord. But, it says, they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now notice something here. It, it tells us something about the common desires of these people. The longings of these people. Because after all, you don't find out, if you use language like this, like the New Testament and the Old Testament doesn't mind using, if you, when you find out you are unable to have children, in this case you are barren, that isn't something you find out in a moment. That's something you become more and more aware of over an extended period of time. And then as politely as Luke knows how, he says they were advanced in years. I love the King James says they were stricken with age. <laughs> Literally, they were, they were advanced. Like they had, they'd come a long way in their number of days. But don't miss that. What it's pointing to here is that they, they had longed for something for a long period of time. They came to be aware of something over a long period of time, and that time period that they would have seen as a window in which that might have changed had closed long ago. In verse 8, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple, that is a, the most holy place, right outside of the Holy of Holies, where there would have been candles lit and there would have been an offering of incense, a picture of burning and sacrifice that would have symbolically lifted up into the most holy place inside the temple as if to be like a fragrant offering as the Old Testament talks about in the nostrils of the Lord. We even see this at the very end of history in, Rome, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 5. Around the throne of the Lamb, there are the elders and the saints holding golden bowls full of incense, which are, as it says, the prayers of the saints. So what do you see here? They're burning incense. And verse 10, one of the many little tips we see, if, if God's entering in, if God's doing something here, there's, there's a bunch of little things here along the way in Luke chapter 1 that I believe are encouragements to us for how it is that we are to engage in meaningful waiting, anticipating with hope the work of God. Verse 10 is one of them. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Right? Did, did, did you hear the language from the Old to the New all the way to Revelation? The, the burning incense are what? The prayers of the saints. And it's as if the prayers of the saints are symbolically wrapped up in the burning incense and the smoke that rises to heaven that, that God receives and hears. And it's by their burning, by their consuming, that they are evidently arising into the presence of God Almighty. But look at a few things that we're meant to see of how we ourselves prepare for the coming of Jesus. The great act of God is accompanied by the fervent prayers of the people. This powerful, amazing encounter that happens next in which the angel of the Lord, the angel Gabriel, meets with Zechariah 
is accompanied by the fervent prayers of people. Don't miss the application for us. We would engage in meaningful, anticipatory waiting for God to work and answer prayers in ways that we couldn't even imagine and fulfill promises in ways that we've long given up hope on. It will be a participatory act of a group of people. This encounter that happened with Zechariah was actually accompanied by a group of people praying and offering up prayers to God. Don't miss the indictment that that is on us. If you want to guarantee that nothing great ever happens in the times that we gather on a Sunday, come like a consumer. Come like a spectator. Come for a show. Come for a spectacle and come to be entertained. That will certainly guarantee that you will never encounter God. But... Look what we see here. There's a powerful indictment, is there not? The encounter of the annunciation of God entering into the story is accompanied by a whole host of people seeking the Lord's response. Friend, this ought to be an invitation to you and to me. This is what we are called to be. Expecting an encounter with God. Expecting that God actually hears our prayers. But if you want to guarantee that nothing like this ever happens in your own life, just keep taking. Keep sucking the life out of people. Never serve. Never respond to the needs of the people around you. Just keep doing that. Don't miss, there's a powerful indictment here. This powerful and great act of God is accompanied by the participation of a bunch of hopeful people. My prayer is that this this is what Advent looks like for our church. Right? There's, there's no show that we're coming to see, but instead there's an encounter with God, each and every one of us. And one of the ways to guarantee that never happens, ignore this. Come prayerless. Come unprepared. Come thinking this is just going to be another day in which you consume the efforts of other people. But, Notice, this is no idle tale. What happens inside is connected to the people praying outside. And I see this, did you catch this? At that hour, at the hour in which the incense was burning. Verse 11, it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now we find here that the priest Zechariah was by lot, cast to play this very important role. In many ways, this was like the pinnacle of his service as priest. Because if you were to serve as priest, we have evidence to believe that many of the times if, the, if a priest served in this capacity, they would never burn incense in the most holy place ever again. This was a, a one-time thing. That is that once they, once they served in this capacity, they were in many ways removed from the drawing or the ability for the lot to be cast in their favor. It was only for people that hadn't done it. Now, now at this particular time, all across Israel, there were thousands of priests. And it's likely that these people came from their hometown. Did you catch that? There's evidently separate from where wherever Zechariah and Elizabeth lived, he came to Jerusalem to serve in this capacity at the temple. And, and so it would have been common that priests from around Israel would have come and they would have served in this particular capacity. His duty would only have been done once. History tells us that this priest might never do this again. This is a big deal. He went off for a week to serve a lot was cast for him to do this. And so people would prepare the coals that would have been in the place of this, this altar, and, and then Zechariah would have been invited in, and he would have offered the, the atoning prayers of the people for the sins that they had committed and offer the incense as a burning, fragrant proposal to the Lord to hear and accept their prayers. But something amazing happened. As Luke tells us, the hopes and doubts and fears of really normal, common people, especially their fears, are addressed by the coming of this King Jesus. And we come to find out that Zechariah had likely lost any hope of anything like this happening. Remember what I told you in the book of Judges, but we see here God works in the unexpected. How do we know that? I want you to see at least three different things going on. The first one, this is the whole multitude 
people that are praying outside at the hour of incense in verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was, number one, troubled. Troubled when he saw him. And then fear fell upon him. So the first hint that we see God working in unexpected ways is that Zechariah is like, he's, he's completely caught off guard. Right? It would, it, it, imagine the kind of anticipation it would take to walk in the angel of the Lord and all the, all the glory of the angel of the Lord. Now, don't miss this. The, the Bible tends to be very discreet when it talks about the appearance of angels, right? Most, most often when you hear like a description of the appearance of angels, it's from people's imagination and not Scripture. So just beware. It doesn't tell us, but, but imagine the kind of anticipation and hope that would, <laughs> that would allow you to see an angel in all its glory and go, hey, I've been waiting for you. But what we see over and over again, that in unexpected ways, God encounters these people. The messenger that is this angel causes Zechariah to be troubled and full of fear. So he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. And then we see something else. We see something amazing. Not only was he troubled and afraid, but then secondly, he says, did you catch that? Your prayer has been answered. Evidently, there was something that was not only troubling Zechariah with the visible presence of an angel, but something evidently had been a longing of his heart. And we find out the messenger tells him, hey, this this prayer you've been asking, it's going to happen. Now, it's hard to tell what prayer that is. If you directly connect that to the next phrase, did you catch that? This, This prayer of yours uh, will be is, is has been heard, and then it immediately says, "And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son." It's most likely that, while certainly Zechariah was praying for the consolation and delivery and the deliverance of his people, he was also praying for a son. Now it's likely that prayers in the past tense, because don't miss what it described and what he repeated. We're advanced in years. It's unlikely that he was praying that prayer. I would even argue it's likely with the way Luke tells us they're advancing years. That was a prayer he stopped praying a long time ago. Something he'd given up on long before. The third way we know that this was counter to what he had expected. Did you catch that in verse 18? Zechariah said to the answer, or said as an answer to the angel, How shall I know this? And then, for I am an old man and my wife is advancing years. And that makes sense, right? Old, people, as they get older, love to talk about it, right? That's, the older you get, the more you're like, I'm old. I, look, I'm getting old. And this, this is something he immediately says. He says it twice. He says, look, how can I know this is possible? How would I know this is true? I'm old. How can I trust and believe this? Don't you know how old I am? So we see this, this is beyond what Zechariah could have imagined. This is beyond certainly what he could have possibly expected. How will I know this? I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. Do you hear what he's saying about what he believes about God? And I want you to hear it because you probably resonate with it if you're honest with yourself. It's too late for me. There's no hope for me. It's done. The time for that kind of hope, the time for those kinds of dreams have come and gone. Can you relate to that? This is the best there is. This is the best I can expect. This is all there is for me. Are you currently in a place where you are convinced that you'll never have what you've always hoped for? Is that you? Don't miss, he says something powerful. He uses identity language, an assertion of identity to counter the promise of God. Don't miss that. That can't be real, I am this. Just see that for what it is. It's another little 
tidbit, a little warning here. Anytime we, we put our own identity in front of God's promises, we always measure it. And it usually, if not always, is a reason and an excuse not to trust God. God can't be who He says He is. He can't possibly do what He says He's going to do. I'm this. And instead of viewing, don't miss this, our own identity and circumstances through the lens of God's promise, we start to view God's promise through the lens of our own identity and circumstances. Don't miss this. This caught him off guard, and his first response was, I am this. Well, I love it. Gabriel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife is advanced in a year. And the angel answered him, oh, you're old? I'm Gabriel. <laughs> Did you catch it? Like, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you good news. Now don't miss that. The declaration of the good news of God's fulfilled promises in Christ directly attack your identity claims. This is so important. Like however you, hi, my name is, I am. Whatever you fill in the blank is likely a hindrance to what God means to make you in Christ. That's important because we, it's not just the book of Judges where we do whatever we want and think whatever we want. We really, we really measure everything based on our own identity. You find yourself, discover yourself, right? Assert yourself. You get the idea? This is, this is real. This is find fulfillment and contentment in yourself. And so he says, look, I am this. And what's the response? I've got good news. And the good news I have is a direct contradiction. It is a direct refutation of who you think you are. I've got something better. Something amazing. Don't miss, he was looking for something, longing for something, and yet his own doubt, and maybe he had given up on believing that God works that way, that God hears and God answers prayers he'd given up on these things but the promise he gave was a refutation to Zechariah here's what I want you to consider this good news that Gabriel brings to him about what God will do that Jesus will come consider it this way Jesus is the satisfaction to the longings you've never even expressed Jesus is the answer to the questions you are too afraid ask. He says, how will I know? He says, you're old? I'm Gabriel. I, do, you know, like, do you know who I am? Do you know who sent me? And behold, he says in verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. This is pretty profound for us. Another little tidbit, something amazing for us to think about. He says, this is what's going to happen. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you're not going to be able to say a word. Not a thing. Silence. Pretty profound. The gospel, as he says, it's good news of what God will do, refutes his identity, but it also inflicts something upon him. His not believing the words, the not believing the good news of God's enunciation of his deliverance, consequences not believing the promises of God has real consequences we'll come back to that but but then he tells him this is what's going to happen as he comes out the people were were waiting again you get this picture of of something that's going on but he he gives us a picture of what will take place verse 13 the angel says don't be afraid your prayers have been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will call his name John we come to find out at the end of the chapter that's not a family name Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Jesus will say later that there is none greater who has ever been born. There is no greater human ever been born than John the Baptist. Now that's just said as a foil because he says, if you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, you're greater than the greatest person ever born. He will be great. And then he begins to tell us what greatness will look like. He will be great before the Lord, and he will be set aside. Now you hear the language of the Nazarite. He will not drink wine or strong drink. And then he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the first thing you see is a picture of the greatness of John the Baptist and what greatness really is. 
What is fame? What is to be noteworthy to God? Now you have to fast forward to the life of John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist become? Does he become a famous, right, well-read celebrity? No. We find out that greatness in the sight of the Lord is to faithfully point to Jesus in the desolate places. That, that's the life of John the Baptist. That's what he has before him. As in he's going to wander. In, I mean, it's a weird movement he starts. He wanders in the wilderness. Okay, you know, you're like, oh, this guy's going to be great. Well, I, I bet he's going you know, to look like the great people. Well-dressed, right? Like he's going he's to be well-spoken, going to be well-spoken of. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to love this guy. And what happens is he's like starts this strange kind of like vegan hippie movement out in the desert. And it's meant to be a challenge to us. What is it to be great? How do you define it? What will it mean for you to really achieve greatness? And what we find here is you're only great insofar as you point to Jesus. After all, the point to anything else might actually be to bring harm, to distract from God's good purposes. Don't miss this. This challenges our current notion and definition of greatness. The one who is truly great is the one who is forgotten for the sake of Jesus being remembered. The one who is truly great is the one who lays his own life down to point to Jesus. His glory is great. His glory saves. And we are great insofar as we make much of Him. Look, I know you think you're the Savior. I know you think you can fix it. But to believe that is to actually be out of the sight of the Lord. And greatness in His sight is to faithfully point to Him, even in the forgotten, desert, desolate places. Second thing you see here that is promised to Zechariah, not only will he be great in the sight of the Lord, but we find out that he will be in some powerful way filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we find, is the necessary source of power to accomplish God's purposes. That's incredibly important here. You're going to see this again, right? What, what happens in this, the climax of this chapter when Mary and Elizabeth meet together? Who gets there too? Who, who joins the party, right? It's not just Mary and the unborn Jesus and Zechariah and the unborn John. Who shows up? The Holy Spirit. And that's the source of great joy. And then we find out evidently like Elizabeth speaks a word of prophecy and blessing because she's so filled with the Holy Spirit. Look, there's nothing that we can do or accomplish apart from God's Spirit. And God will accomplish His purpose by His Spirit. He will be the necessary source of power. Look, look deeper. Not only will He be anointed by the Holy Spirit, even from the mother's womb, Verse 16, then he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is big for Christians. In the end, repentance is the goal. That is to turn from trusting in lesser things, looking for satisfaction and contentment in other places, and turn to our Father, Creator God as our source of contentment and joy. Repentance is the goal. His greatness will be and that he points to the salvation of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in order that people turn away from lesser things to trust in the one true God. But look at the byproduct of it. Not only will people repent, this is why, this is why Christians are so preoccupied with this, really think it's important to turn from, turn away from sin, to confess it for what it is, agree with God that, that it is a rebellion against Him, and then as we are turned toward Him and see Him for how merciful and truly patient and kind He really is, we have a new life. We're born again, as it were. And then the outworking of that, He says, He will go before Him, that is Him, the Savior, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, remember, Elijah, if you want to, uh, this would be some great homework for you this week, Elijah, you can read all about in 1 Kings. I encourage you, read about Elijah. But here's what you'll see. Elijah is not the king. Elijah is the voice of God to the king. And God and his voice are present alongside the kings through Elijah. And that's what this guy will be like. The message, turn to the Lord. And then look at the results. Did you catch them? One, it will restore the family. I'm going to go before him in the spirit of Elijah and it will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. 
It's a pretty crazy thing to entertain, isn't it, fathers? Down deep? The fruit of the missing gospel in your own life might be visible in the posture of your heart towards your children. Oh, but I love them. I value them. Oh. And he says, what will happen when they look to God's work will reconcile the family, will rebuild the family. Then it says, the next thing, the disobedient will come to the wisdom of the just and the people will become ready. So get the byproduct of what God is going to do. Families, the disobedient and the foolish will be made ready. They're going to be prepared for what God is going to do. They're going to begin to expect God's reconciling work. Don't miss that. I, I respectfully disagree that our focus ought not be on the family. Our focus ought to be on the Lord. And then we find that the family, the disobedient, the foolish, the unwise, the impatient, begin to experience contentment, healing, and restoration. But apart from that work, we find out they're left. Fathers with animosity towards their children and probably vice versa. And Zechariah challenges in verse 18, how will I know this is really going to happen? How will I know this? Compare that with, with, with Mary's question in verse 34, how will this be, right? And he's like, how am I going to... Ultimately, this is about, be, about me, angel Gabriel. How, what's this got to do with me? How am I going to know that? How can I trust you? And then something amazing happens, like because you did that, because you don't believe this good news, you are going to be silent through the entirety of your wife's pregnancy until she gives birth. Listen, husbands should remain silent during their wife's pregnancy. <laughs> That's not a real point. But this is single-handedly the most funny part of the story, isn't it? Time out. Time out. We're going to have a baby, and I can't even talk about it. And my, all the time that my wife is pregnant, nothing. Silence. That's fun. I don't, maybe that's not funny to you. That's funny to me. Most, most women who have been pregnant were like, amen, 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 let it be. Now, that's silly, but, but notice something that's really going on in the silence of this priest preacher. In his mercy, the Lord will painfully remove the barriers to trusting in him. Think of this. This is, this is a preacher. This is a priest. This is a person whose job is to offer consolation to people, to speak on behalf, an interceding word on behalf of God to people. And what will happen when God does this in light of his unbelief? Zip, nothing. Silence. It's interesting, in verse 62, you can skip there if you want, verse 62, we find out that not only was he unable to speak, but evidently it's likely that he was completely deaf. Because in verse 62, did you see, they have, to, they have to like signal to him. He wasn't just making signals, they were signaling to him. And if you don't think that the ability to speak is meaningful and powerful for a priest, then you don't miss the irony of what God does here. There are consequences to not believing the promise of God, but in his mercy, the Lord might remove those barriers to trusting in him. I have no doubt, as a fellow speaker of God's word like Zechariah, how tempting it is to find my identity in what I do, to find my identity in my words and what I have to say, to find my identity in the moments where you're listening to me. And isn't it amazing? Don't miss the irony of this. The Lord pulled that out of Zechariah's hand. He said, you, you're going you're to sit quietly and the last thing you will have heard is the promise you didn't believe. So that the echoes, the last thing, think about it, like the echoes, the thing that was echoing in his brain was a promise of God that he rejected. But now you see a foil, don't you? Now, I want you to just look closely. Verse 23, and when this time of service is ended, he goes home, right? This is a once-in-a-lifetime deal, right? 
you've got to think that one of the most amazing parts of this was, I can't wait to go tell my wife about this, right? Just see the irony here. But in verse 24, it says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. There is a, like, I, I, I would, man, there, there are like a series of sermons in between verse 23 and verse 24. Frankly, the, the text doesn't say what's happening, but like, my imagination goes wild. He left, went home, and then it just goes, after some days, he and his wife conceived. Like, what? But then I love, I love how honest Luke is with us. I love how honest the whole Bible is with us. It doesn't cover up the messiness of, of life and our skepticism and doubt. And some of you who have, in your own way, battled with infertility and the inability to have children, did you catch what she does? After these days, Elizabeth conceived, but then she does something that you'll relate to, right? And Luke gives us a window into the heart of Elizabeth. For five months, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Did you catch that? I know you've been there. She's probably afraid to tell someone, right? I don't want to get my hopes up too quickly. And so she told no one for five months until at that point, likely visible. But then we see the preview to something else. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth and to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. And then she gets this promise. You're a favored one, but notice she didn't expect it either. She didn't expect this thing to happen either. She was troubled. She was freaking out herself and she was trying to discern what kind of greeting. Like, is this is the judgment of God coming on me? Is this to strike me, to smite me? But notice her response. It's this beautiful little, little play on words Luke gives us. Did you catch that? The angel said, don't be afraid. You're going to conceive and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. And then it says something in 32. He will be, and there's that language again, he's going to be great. He will be, and then her first response is, how will this be all the way to the point where it says in verse 38, let it be. Look, this is, he will be this. And she says, how will it be? And then her response is, all right, let it be according to your word. This is really interesting. The evidence of God's favor upon Mary and upon us is trusting his word. She says, all right. I'm a servant of the Lord. If that's what the Lord wants to do, let it be according to your word. And that was when the angel departed. This is really interesting because I believe Mary gives us a window into our own life that true blessing is found in trusting the promises of God. Look, I know that's improbable. I know you've given up on this, but this is what's going to happen. This is what the Lord is up to. This restoring and reconciling work that's happening is evidence that he's going to fulfill a promise. He's going to keep it for us. And the way we experience present, uh, a present blessing is by trusting in his past promises. And that's really interesting. Both Mary and Zechariah are shocked. And it's likely because there was a longing in their own heart there was something they were hungering and thirsting for that God alone could satisfy. You see it in their shock and fear. Think of it this way. Zechariah didn't realize that he didn't really believe that God could show up until he felt the shock of it actually happening. He didn't know that he was longing or needing something until it was there. Mary didn't realize it. She didn't really believe that God could show up until what? Until she felt the confounding annunciation. The way it troubled her. She didn't know that that was beyond her capacity until it was facing her and confounded, perplexed her. And then, did you catch the climax of the chapter? Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And, and this is amazing because 
one of the powerful stories, as we'll talk about next week, of the advent, the coming of Jesus, is that for the longest period of time in the biblical, biblical narrative and, and the history of God's people, some 400 years since the book of Malachi, right? For the longest period of time, there was silence. There was no prophet who spoke on God's behalf. There was no, there was no sacred word from outside the world to these people. There was silence. And, and it's really interesting. One of the most powerful things happens. Like this first chapter is a breaking of the silence. And one of the, the, the ways that we see that silence broken, broken is the Holy Spirit comes upon what? Elizabeth in her old age. And she immediately begins to prophesy and speak blessing over the mother of Jesus. And the silence is broken with words of blessing to Mary. We trusted in and hoped in God's promise. Elizabeth didn't realize she didn't know the full presence of the Spirit of God until her unborn, until the unborn baby Jesus came into the room. Don't miss it. There's a picture that God comes into these common, ordinary places and exposes something that they're they're not even looking for. It's like they're not even looking for it until God offers it. And that, my friend, is the mystery of God's grace. He granted to these people and grants to us the thing we don't even have the awareness to ask for. Friend, I didn't even know I was looking for Jesus until by God's grace He showed up and invaded and entered into my own life. You might be sitting there thinking with skepticism, like, I, I don't know what the big deal is with this Jesus taking away sin. What's the big deal with sin? And I'll encourage you, I didn't think sin was a big deal to me until God offered me forgiveness for it. I didn't realize I was dead until His grace brought me to life. I didn't realize I was hungry, empty, or searching until He found me. I didn't realize I was broken until He started to put me back together. Is it possible for some of you in this room that Jesus is not only the answer to a prayer here, but Jesus is an answer and a response to a desire that you've given up on having? Is it possible Jesus is a satisfaction to things you were too afraid to ask God for? Jesus is the satisfaction of things you've given up on wanting. I mean, doesn't that explain our patterns of sin? I mean, is it possible that your addictions are just your way of coping with the fear that this is all there is? That God doesn't really satisfy the deep desires and so I've got to find satisfaction elsewhere? What if your patterns of secret sin are just the way that you're trying to deal with your fear that this is all there is? Bonhoeffer says it this way. It's an encouragement to you and I. Whoever does not know the austere blessedness of waiting, that is longing, of hopefully doing without, will never experience the full blessing of fulfillment. We find out that the Lord actually does us a great kindness. The Lord does us a great kindness to show us that He is enough to satisfy us so that we will be aware that the world is not. And in fact, to be sorrowful and mournful that this is all there is, is a kindness of God. That you might be so dissatisfied with this world that you would know that unless God breaks in from outside this world, there is no possible hope. This is powerful. This kindness gives us a way to anticipate what God has done for us in Jesus. Think of it this way, and I'll end with this. God is preparing a place and a people for Him to make His home among them. Preparing a place to move in. Did you catch the longing in Elizabeth's joy? 
Did you hear the question he asks? She starts to bless Mary, but then, but then she says something. I mean, blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But then he asks a question. She asks an amazing question, right? A question that up to this moment, maybe she'd never thought of, but she says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why would the Lord visit me? Is it possible that she couldn't even fathom the depth of satisfaction that was available to her in the coming of this Lord? She says, and why would the Lord come and visit me? Brother, sister, believer, disciple, have, do you resonate with that question? Because the grace of God is visible when we say, why on earth? Why would he say, I, didn't, I wasn't even looking for him. In fact, I was looking for something else. I was running as fast as I could in the opposite direction. Why on earth would he run me down? What profit could it have possibly been to him to win me over? You hear the, the language of the hymn, and, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me. I'm the one who caused him pain. He pursued me to death. The one who's been rebelling against him, that's amazing love. How can it be, Elizabeth said, that God would come and die for me? How can it be that this Lord would come and visit me? And I'll explain it this way. When I was in high school, a close family friend, he was a very prominent and well-to-do architect and builder. And uh, he and his family purchased an old uh, a, a train depot. And they began to remodel this depot. It, you know, it's, it like showed up in magazines. Really cool. And they, they remodeled. It was terrible. It was, it was bad. And they bought this old train depot and were gutting it to turn it into their house. And what I noticed, though, in this like well-to-do, very effective, efficient architect moved very, very slow to finish his own house projects. Maybe that's just the way house projects go. But he was doing something amazing. And and I caught wind of why. He was being so slow and methodical. He didn't hire anyone else to do the work. He did it himself. With his own hands, was building this house. And I was like, you know, why, you know, why is this not done yet? Or why is this not ready yet? Which I'm sure bothered him, because I bet his wife said the same thing. And something to the effect of, like, okay, all right, let me tell you why I'm going slow and methodical. Let me tell you why I'm preparing this house with such precision. I'm going to live there. This is going to be my family's home. Oh, friend, did you catch the question of Elizabeth? Why would God come to me? Why would he show himself to me? Why would he offer satisfaction to the longings of my soul that I didn't even know I had? Why would he offer me pleasures that I didn't even know I had a taste for? Friend, it's because he looked at you and he said, I'm preparing a place and a people where I'm going to live. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to be among them. And they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt from these moments on that this is not all there is. The universe is not closed. It is open. And the Lord has busted through the ceiling to prove himself to us. So we would know we were not forsaken, not forgotten, that the deep longings of our heart are not ending in misery, but they are answered yes and amen in Jesus. Now, did you catch what John is going to do? Let's get ready for that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for seeking us when we ourselves were wandering from you. We thank you for offering satisfaction to desires that we didn't even know we had. We thank you for answering the prayer of a Savior before we even knew we needed it. God, if there's some in this room that even now, maybe they wouldn't call themselves believers, they wouldn't call themselves disciples of Jesus, not yet, but but thank you for bringing them here. And might even now you begin to stir in them thoughts of, of pondering. Is it possible that the thing they've been longing for is waiting for them in Jesus? Is it possible that this gift of grace through Jesus is, is an answer to prayer that they were, not, they were, they were too fearful of that to even ask? God, would you even now instill in them 
faith to look and ponder the reality that you have come to satisfy us before we even knew we were hungry. Might today be the day we look in faith to the finished work of Jesus as proof that you are not holding out from us, but you are offering joy and pleasure forevermore. Maybe for the rest of us, we have heard this good news, uh, but like Zechariah, we, we just hesitate to believe it. And maybe we're sitting in skepticism, sitting in doubt. God, I confess, that's exactly where I was sitting when you broke in to show yourself to me. Might this morning, you remind us that you are with us and for us, and you have offered contentment and satisfaction to the deep longings of our heart. In fact, you have created us for this moment to be satisfied in you. Might we look in faith to the finished work of your Son and receive that satisfaction and longing, that satisfaction to our longing and that contentment to our wandering. We love you and thank you for this offering and this gift in Jesus Christ. Amen.